Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week we talked to Rick Howard, Chief Security Officer of Palo Alto Networks, about the current state of cybersecurity. This week we hear from a chess champion whose defeat at the hands of a computer led him to investigate the ways in which humans can collaborate with computers to achieve better results than either could achieve alone. In many instances, human emotions are very important to change the outcome of the decision because machines will always rely on odds. That's the voice of Gary Kasparov, who spoke to me recently about both the risks and the potential for good that artificial intelligence can offer. Gary, thank you very much for joining us on Tectonic. I wondered if we could start with your fascinating book called Deep Thinking and Chess. You were arguably the greatest chess player who's ever lived. You played 2,400 games or so since the age of 12, and you only lost 170 of them. And then in 1997, 20 years ago, you played Deep Blue and were the first reigning world champion to lose to a computer. What did that feel like at the time? For me, it was not just first loss against the machine, it was first loss period hmm. of, of the match, um, a serious match. Now, going back and just analyzing the games and speaking from the scientific perspectives, the watershed moment was not 1997, but 1996. Though I won the first match, I always want to remind people that there were two matches. Indeed, I won yeah. the first one. But I lost game one in this first match in Philadelphia. And... Um, the fact is that the machine succeeded in winning one game under normal tournament conditions against the world champion signaled to all people who would understand it. So actually, I, I still couldn't believe it, but right now I understand that was like writing on the wall. So the rest would be a matter of time. One year, two years, three years, four years, but it was inevitable. And uh, now I could be more objective analyzing uh, my performance in 96 match, in 97 match, uh, also in, in some consecutive matches I played against other machines. That's, you know, I did my best, I tried hard, just, but I was in a race against time. Uh, it was just a matter of time when machines could get strong enough and algorithms could get, you know, good enough and uh, databases could, be, could grow big enough for machines to win the game, the game of chess. I want to emphasize, it's not to solve, but to win. Because chess is not solvable. It's the, the number of legal moves in the game of chess is 10 to the 45th power. And uh, game complexity calculated by Shannon is 10 to 123. But those numbers are irrelevant when you have two opponents. And uh, while humans are always making some mistakes or inaccuracies, machine has a steady hand. And chess is a very human game, and psychology is such an important part of it when you're playing against another human. It must be extraordinarily unnerving to have played against a computer that showed no emotion, gave nothing back to you at all. But every game is a psychological one, whether you play chess or you play poker or you just whatever, you name the game, backgammon, so there's the old element of psychology there. In chess, yes, if you especially play a long match, Against the same opponent, yes, it's uh, it's um, it's tiring, psychologically tiring, and it's exhausting. Machine is a different story. It's not just you know, machine is represented by another human. Technically, they have a human making making the moves, but it's at a certain point you realize that unlike normal human game, 
the favors will not be returned. If you make a mistake, you're out. So just, you know, this is one wrong move and the uh, game could be over. So there's no, there's no hope that uh, a machine will show the same weakness as a, as a human opponent and potentially could, you know, help you to go back to the game. And what you go on to describe in the book is that the man and machine can work together. So now the best chess is played when humans interact with the machines to play other teams is that a kind of parable for the world that we're moving into, you think, that um, man and machine can work in symbiosis? Yes, I think chess, from the very beginning, served as an ideal uh, field to test machines' ability, and it's not surprising that these great minds, uh, the pioneers of computer science like Alan Turing, Robert Shannon, Norbert Wiener, they all view chess as the ultimate test for machines' intelligence. It's quite ironic that when machine actually beat human world chess champion, it was not... Uh, intelligent machines as they anticipated, but it was rather this dull, unintelligent supercomputer. Yes, you call it at one point a programmable $10 million alarm clock. Yes, yes. But still, it's just, it's, it was a step in the right direction because, again, it, it showed what machines were capable of. And uh, after losing this match, so, and also losing my hopes to play a rematch because IBM decided to retire the computer, so I... While licking my wounds, I just thought, why not to seek the cooperation? So you can beat them, join them. So it's just, what about uh, getting together and just you know playing the perfect game of chess? So uh, if we could uh, combine human intuition, human understanding of the game of chess with machines, brute force of calculation and memory, and I introduced what I call advanced chess. It's the human plus machine versus other humans plus machines. And uh, we also learned quite you know, a few important lessons by playing these games. One is that uh, human plus machine will always beat a super machine because even a relatively weak computer will compensate us for our human weaknesses and will guarantee that we will not be making mistakes under pressure. You know, and will not let our silicon point of the hook because then you simply can switch to the computer and just you know, machine will finish the job. But the most interesting lesson was that uh, when you have humans uh, and computers playing against each other, so human plus computer versus another human, or group of humans plus computers, the most important thing is not the strengths of the human player. It's not the power of the computer they use, but it's the interface. It's a cooperation, so this is the best formula of cooperation. And uh, the superior interface is always playing a vital role in, in deciding the outcome. So, for instance, if you're looking for ideal team, human plus machine, you don't need uh, Michael Carlson or Gary Kasparov. To the contrary, you have to actually look for someone else. So you call this Kasparov's law? Yeah, it's Kasparov's law. Can you explain law. what you yeah, mean but it's by the, that? I think it goes beyond chess. Again, chess could you know, serve as a test field, but we simply should recognize that in many instances, machines are doing better than we are. And when you look at the absolute strengths of top human players and machines, the gap is huge today. So for those who play chess, they know that Magnus Carlsen is in 2800-plus category, 2830 now, 2840, these rating. And machines are probably four or 500 points stronger. So the 33 to 3400, which is just insane strength. It's the same as the difference between Magnus and the national master playing in an open tournament. So if you have such a gap in strengths. So you rather find someone who will recognize that in 80 or 90% of the cases, you don't have to interfere with the machine. You don't have to play your own game. 
you have to make sure that you will just compensate for the sort of remaining deficit in the machine's quality of play. Because if you are as strong as Magnus or any top player, you will try to play your own game. It's, it's a psychological stumbling block. It's about your uh, pride, your just honor, eager. And the same could apply to other walks of life. So, for instance, if you have a machine that is working with data in medicine, giving you the diagnosis, if you team up this machine with the top professor, who is also good but still worse, say, professor can make, again, from the top of my head, 60% of the right calls machine, 80 or 85%, then you will never find the best combination because all you need is just to make sure that what is the remaining 10, 15% it will be covered by human intuition without interfering with this 85 or machine is definitely superior. So you rather go for an experienced nurse who could be a good operator by just, you know, following the machine and just, you know, using human intuition to clarify certain situations where machine uh, brute force is not enough. Right. Now, you subtitle your book, Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. Where is that point? It's also about psychology because many people today, they buy all these doomsday stories about the end of humanity and the dominance of the machines. It's just, it's influenced by uh, movies like The Matrix or The Terminator. And of course, um, you hear a lot of these predictions coming from science, scientific world, from business world. And I think it's wrong because future is a self-fulfilled prophecy. And if you believe it will be bleak and dark, you may end up in total darkness. So you think all these scare stories about the singularity and superintelligence are nonsense? I think they are just, you know, they are not relevant for us today because the biggest danger today is not what will happen with us in 100 or 20 years and whether it will be singularity and whether it will be Skynet, but whether this technology that is gaining ground now will end up in the hands of bad guys, of Putin's and Kim Jong-un's in this world. This is a real danger. So this is what we should care of without, you know, fantasizing about the very distant future. And also, when you hear people complaining about the jobs being lost and we are in a race against the machines or a fight or even at war, but it's called progress. So I don't want to sound callous and to be accused of just being totally indifferent to suffering of those moving their jobs, but millions of jobs have been lost in manufacturing. And uh, we didn't hear the same outcries. The difference now that machines going after people with college degrees and Twitter accounts. That's why it suddenly it became a very hot topic. But also people, you know, they tend to grab the benefits and complain about the negatives, but it's the same package. So, yes, people live longer. That's why they want to have, you know, good jobs even at age 50 or 60. But they live longer because of the technology. And this technology demands younger people to address these demands of new industries. So it's a very complicated circle of the problems. And trying to separate them and protract the agony by saying, let's slow down the process is not going to help. To the contrary, it's going just to create more problems because we will not move fast enough to generate enough income to actually offer some help to those who are left behind. So you really have quite an optimistic take on the future of technology and how man and machine are going to interact. Can you tell us a bit more? What areas do you think where humanity is going to benefit from this symbiosis? Almost everywhere. But first, you know, machines will relieve us from some repetitive tasks because we could see that better machines, you know, smart machines, they make humans also smart. Our kids, you know, they're far more sophisticated in using these machines and getting the best out of them. So... In order to maximize this effect, we just have to simply recognize that we will belong to the last few decimal places. 
And there's nothing wrong about it. I don't think that we should be complaining about it and saying this is diminishing our intelligence and our integrity because we want to get the best result. And if you have a very powerful machine as a powerful tool, as a powerful supporter for your research, for your activities, then the tiny tweak in channeling this massive force, you know, could help you to change results quite dramatically. And I think that's the vast territory where emotional response is needed to improve the quality of decisions. And um, I think, again, we should recognize that anything that we do while knowing how we do that, machines will do better. So that's this important. There's no way that machines will not learn and surpass us in things that we can quantify. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Right. And you focus quite a lot on the so-called Moravec paradox. Could you explain to us what that is and how you think in a way that informs your optimism? Yeah, yeah. This is this machines are good at something and it's and human are not and, and the other way around. But now it's finding the way to combine this to complementary qualities. And again, we'll know that there's certain things that machines will always do better. And the machines are even trying to cover territories that we thought, okay, like visions. You can start even improving machines on the territories that, according to Moravic paradox, could not be conquered by the machine. Again, because the more we learn about the way we see, we hear, we talk, so more data is available, so better chance for machines to actually imitate that and to repeat these functions and then even maybe even improve them. The problem is that we still don't know, and I don't think we'll find out anytime soon, whether our brains can function separately from our bodies. So there's still many mysteries about the way human body, human brain, human organism, they're, they're functioning. Uh, and also, in many instances, human emotions are very important to change the outcome of the decision because machines will always rely on odds. And I will try to come up with the best answer based on the evaluation. It could be billions of different parameters and patterns, but at the end of the day, still, you know, it has to look at the end value. But the boundaries of what machines can do are kind of constantly advancing. So to take just one example, we always say that machines can't recognize human emotion, but facial recognition technology now can detect where people are scowling or smiling. That's not emotion. That's the... but, but you can have the kind of competence in understanding or analyzing yeah, the, that someone is happy or sad or angry. But first of all, you understand that the same facial impression on you or me may not necessarily be the same. For instance, one situation that I always use in my presentations is that, let's say, machine runs your e-wallet and machine just has all data about your um, finances, your salary, your bonuses, your mortgage rate, your what you name it. So this is everything. And you're in the, in the store now just looking for an expensive gift and the machine immediately signals you that it's just, you know, your budget and it's, it's, it's wrong. So that's, is machine right? Absolutely. But if you make a little alteration to the story, so you have your son or daughter next to you and his birthday present, 
it's not quantifiable. You will never explain to the machine that is you must do it because, and then again, this because could have billions different variations because it's important. Maybe maybe you are still married. Maybe you are divorced. Maybe, again, there's so many situations where your emotional reaction is very important to change the outcome of the decision. And I keep coming up with many many situations where you will find out that machines are always right because they know the odds. But odds not necessarily are just offering the best outcome in decision making. And as long as we keep expanding the frontier, so as long as we learn new things, we can always, you know, have an upper hand. But doesn't that lead us into a dangerous territory where we invest too much authority in machines? You say machines are right. And in probabilistic terms, they may well be right more often than not. But oh, no, absolutely, yes, there will be. But there are still areas, as you're saying, where humans clearly have to have an override. You can always come up with the unfortunate situation that's where machines, you know, they've recommended the wrong decision. But in big numbers, if you look from the perspectives of the entire humanity, so human race, machines just perform better. So you know that it's the, the autopilot in the plane, so just does a better job. But sometimes you have to interfere. But again, we know that in the plane, the pilot's interference is, what is, 10% of time? So this is, it could be vital 10%, it could be vital 5%, but at the end of the day, it's still, you know, it's a relatively small percentage of time where you need human intervention to guarantee the outcome. And you don't think there's a law of diminishing returns, that the more big data we have, the more complex the systems that we have, the more we build in spurious correlations and there is a kind of diminishing return to the ability of these machines to use the data that we have. No, I, again, it depends whether we stuck with the closed system or we just, you know, move the open-ended systems. Because as long as we are just looking for some new things, for instance, if we go back to the space exploration that we abandoned because it was too risky, so we'll just start finding new things. It's very important for us to actually recover the spirit of innovations, breakthrough innovations, just, you know, where humans could actually feel that that's the right way to go. And again, even with all the data in this world, you may end up with a machine getting it wrong because of the, somewhere in the very beginning, for instance, now, because if we talk about AlphaGo, for instance, it's the, the prototypes of, the, of AI, if there's a bug there, you will not find it because they all just, you know, they, it's a deep learning process and they keep playing the games against each other, uh, different versions, and they collect this data. They just, you know, they um, made this, these comparisons and uh, they come up with what they believe is the better strategy, again, based on evaluations. But just imagine that we just had this driving data from thousand cars, same model, same year of production. And for some reasons... The red cars perform better than cars of other colors. Possible. Correlation and causation. For you and me, it's just accidental, so we'll definitely not make a big fuss about it. For machine, it could be the signal that the red paint makes machine run faster. Hmm. Now, it's not tragic if you just find it at the spot, but the information could be stored somewhere deep down, and in 100 iterations, machine will come up with a solution based on, among others, on this wrong conclusion. So those are the situations where we'll still need this little tweak of human intellect. And again, it's not a favorite story, but it's a story that unfortunately is just it's not publicized. That's in 1983, probably one of the most dangerous moments of the Cold War, when the Soviet officer, Stanislav Petrov, basically called off retaliation after seeing five Minutemen have cannibalistic missiles 
heading for the Soviet Union, and by protocol, he had to initiate an immediate retaliatory strike. And uh, he explained it later, saying that it's just he applied purely human uh, abilities to analyze it. One is, if it's a first strike, you don't use five. You use whatever you have, 500. So this is not for five, it's just wrong. Two, system that's the early nuclear detection system, it was new and not trustworthy. And then, because of these first two, he waited for radar to come up with corroborative evidence, and it didn't show any. So that's why he came up with a conclusion that it was malfunction. He was right. Yeah, thank God for his human intuition. The, Otherwise, we wouldn't be this, here. Would we? Again, for those who say, no, 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 we'll just we'll lose it. But throughout the history of human race, we have been creating machines to help us to improve our living standards and just to get rid of some of the more primitive tasks. And we kept building these machines, and now we have something that is ready to interfere with the process of cognition. But at the end of the day, I think we should still treat it as an important tool and just recognize that there's still room for us. We just have to rethink it. We have to be creative to understand where we belong to. Final question. I want to ask you about Vladimir Putin and the comments that he was making about whoever leads in the field of AI will be the ruler of the world. You were saying earlier that you think we have far more to worry about from stupid humans than we do from super-intelligent machines. Evil humans. They may not be stupid, by the way. (laughs) What are the dangers of this technology being used in bad ways? Oh, any any technology could be used for destructive purposes, so we know that. By the way, it's much easier to build a nuclear bomb than a nuclear power plant. And the, the growing danger is that these days, Putins of this world, and specifically Putin, they don't have to invent this inside their own countries. They don't have to spend billions and billions mobilizing the scientists and the resources. They have to buy it from elsewhere. So it's globalization, and Putin controls so much money that he can always go anywhere to make a lucrative offer. So that's why I'm saying it's... All the calls for slowing down the process could be counterproductive because science cannot be stopped. People will not stop researching. And uh, we don't want to see that some of the scientists being upset and annoyed by the lack of the response from the democratic government. They could go elsewhere. And Putin already made it clear that he would be looking for such opportunities just to have his hands on the technology that could offer him sort of a new leverage. But you think we ought to have international protocols stopping lethal autonomous weapon systems. Is that possible, do you think? Unfortunately, in the modern world, it's virtually it's impossible. But still, you know, you have to try to make sure that the free world controls the buttons. Because democracies don't fight each other. They could have diplomatic conflicts, they can quarrel, but they don't go into wars. Yeah, so uh, now the real danger of war comes from Putin's, uh, Kim Jong-un's, Iranian mullahs, and others who see that war could be the only way to prop up their power. That's why it's very important that we recognize all these complex problems and we'll come up with kind of a strategy that will secure the development of human race and technology without handing it over to those, who, which is an irony, who could use it and most likely will use it to undermine the foundation of the free world where the technology was invented. Because we saw that this is all this fake news, industries, troll factories, and attacks on democratic elections in Europe or the United States, they're all based on indiscriminate use of the technology invented in the free world. Thank you very much, Kerry.
We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app, and if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.